0: This week, thunderous explosions rocked the Ukrainian capital of Kiev as Russian forces unleashed another blistering attack of cruise missiles on the city and other regions throughout the country. The attacks targeted energy facilities and other critical infrastructure, cutting off the water supply for 80% of Kiev's residents. It was yet another reminder that despite recent gains by the Ukrainians on the battlefield, the brutal war that Russia launched last February shows no sign of abating, even as The risks of escalation seem to grow by the day. Is there any hope for diplomacy, or is the world stuck watching a bloody stalemate in a conflict that has no end in sight? We'll talk to the CIA's former top Russia analyst on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend. Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So
1: help me God. So help me God. So help me God. So help me God.
0: So help me God. God. I'm Michael Izakoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News.
1: I'm Dan Clydman, editor-in-chief of Yahoo News.
2: And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a senior counsel at States United. So I met our
0: guest, George Beebe, who was with the CIA for years, a top Russia analyst, also had been an aide, as you'll hear, to um, uh, Vice President Cheney when he was in the White House, at this event commemorating the uh, 60th anniversary of the Cuba Missile Crisis last week. And the whole premise of the event is that, to, to remind people of just how perilously close we came to a real nuclear conflict with the Russians uh, over Cuba in 1962. And uh, it is pretty harrowing to hear just how close we came among those at this uh, event was Jack Matlock who was you know later a, a the US ambassador to the Soviet Union but at the time was in the US embassy in Moscow transmitting these really scary messages between Kennedy and Khrushchev. And And so after everybody spoke about the Cuban Missile Crisis and often in the context of the current proximity we have to uh, possible nuclear conflict with Russia over Ukraine, I got up and asked, okay, what lessons can we draw from the Cuban Missile Crisis that apply to the Russia-Ukraine crisis? And I gotta say, it was pretty striking Everybody was stumped. Nobody had a good answer for what we learned from the Cuban Missile Crisis and how it might apply today to a possible resolution of the horrible conflict in uh, Ukraine.
2: If memory serves during the the Cuban Missile Crisis, there were essentially two things that the United States did that was critically important. The first is that when faced with conflicting signals from Russia, we chose to listen to the peaceable signal rather than the warmongering signal. And the second thing that we did, and it was a big concession, is that we agreed not to place any nuclear missiles or to remove substantial military armaments to Turkey, so, I mean, maybe there are some lessons from the Cuban Missile Crisis, but maybe I should have been on that panel.
1: <laughs> well, I, I guess um, the lesson is that uh, secret negotiations and uh, diplomacy works
0: or, or can work. Um, right. That's,
1: that's what happened.
0: But that's not a position that anybody really wants to advocate in Washington these days, as we saw with the House Progressive Caucus debacle from a week or so ago.
1: Right. I mean, you know, uh, diplomacy in the aftermath of this brutal invasion, war c- crimes being committed, you know, a sovereign nation, uh, you know, attacked in a war of aggression. Talking about diplomacy is is a kind of a third rail in our uh, politics uh, these days. And uh, it's pretty rare to see the House Progressive Caucus chastened and uh, retracting uh, their own uh, statement and that tells you something about how difficult it is to actually talk about uh, diplomacy uh, these days. You know, on the other hand, when you are think about the possibility of things spinning out of control, you know, we've talked about this before on the podcast, in some ways, the situation with Putin may be more dangerous than it was uh, with the Soviets because at least during the Cold War, you had these two systems that were in conflict. But they were systems, you know. It was not at, you know, the dangers were not just the whim of, you know, the Soviet leader. I mean, they had to work within the Politburo, and uh, and here you have Putin, who's extremely isolated and um, has a very small group of advisors, and so it's a very very tough uh, situation. I don't know what we what you do. I don't know what the lessons are.
0: After all that. You're sort of like what everybody, where everybody ended up at this Cuban Missile Crisis event.
2: Yeah. On the other hand, the, the question is impossible to answer is maybe we are having back-channel negotiations with the Russians right now. I mean, who's to say that we aren't actually negotiating or talking with Russia right now? I think what we've established is we can't talk about whether or not we're negotiating with Russia, but we're not saying... That we don't, and and Mike, I suppose that's just basically a challenge to you as an investigative journalist <laughs> to to go, well, to go figure to go figure I mean, this look, one out. <laughs> you know, there
0: there there are some talks. Um, uh, didn't uh, Austin, the defense secretary, recently have uh, some talks with the uh, the new Russian defense minister? So on some level, there's some some sort of uh, communication going on. But but look, when Biden calls Putin a war criminal, it's hard. To reconcile that kind of rhetoric with the idea that there's some kind of back-channel discussions going on. Well, speaking of back, Um, I
1: fully expect that the CIA director, uh, Bill Burns, who we've had on this podcast and who was-
0: Before um, he was CIA director.
1: Before he was CIA (laughs) director and who who was ambassador to uh, Moscow and who met with uh, Putin, knows him personally, uh, and by the way, wrote a memoir- Called back channel because right. he led the back channel discussions with Iran that led to uh, the Ir- Iranian nuclear uh, agreement. I would be surprised if uh, Bill Burns and the CIA didn't have some back channel to the Russians and those conversations uh, weren't weren't taking place. It would be diplomatic malpractice not to because of the need to prevent. Some miscalculation because there wasn't communication. Things spinning out of control that could lead to a, a nuclear conflict. But the question is, how far can that uh, back channel go, and what do we have to offer the Russians, and uh, what are what are the Ukrainians uh, willing to to offer the Russians at a time, by the way, when they are, I think, feel justifiably like they are on the offensive. They are they are winning this uh, this conflict, and they would like to see. Every last Russian expelled from their territory. That's their position. No,
0: I get that. And, you know, look, uh, so much of this is sort of hostage to what's going on on the battlefield. Right. I mean, the uh, House Progressive Caucus letter calling for diplomacy was originally written, I think, back in June and members signed on over you know the following weeks but then what happened over the summer the ukrainians made some really dramatic gains in the south right and it suddenly looked like the ukrainians maybe could prevail and so of course you know everybody a lot of people signed the letter you know immediately uh, took their names off and didn't want to have anything to do with it But you look at, you know, that was sort of the way the the things looked last week. You know, this week you see the Russians stepping up, you know, the this bombardment of Ukrainian cities and, you know, destroying the critical infrastructure. Uh, The Ukrainians are telling their people who have left Ukraine, don't come back. We may not have water or power for you during uh, the winter months. And, um, you know, one gets to see. A, a somewhat bleaker picture, or at least as it looks to me, anyway, like we're talking about a prolonged stalemate in which a lot of people lose their lives, a lot of people, and and more destruction is leveled on the country. And that doesn't seem. I guess where I come down is I don't see a clear, coherent strategy for how this. For, on the U.S. part, for ending the war. It doesn't, it, you know, we're not giving the Ukrainians, we're giving them a lot, but we're not giving them everything they're asking for. Meanwhile, the Iranians, we now learn, are giving. Are, are going to be selling these surface missiles, uh, a, a, a ballistic missiles to uh, the Russians that they can use against the Ukrainians. You know, how, how does this end? I, I don't see it.
2: I mean, as you well know, the first rule of politics, which presumably is also the first rule of diplomacy, is to always uh, give your opponent a graceful way out. And it's uh, kind of rather difficult to figure out exactly what anyone can or is willing to give Putin at this stage of the game. Certainly, the Ukrainians don't seem to be willing to give him anything. And that's probably the most important fact in this matter of anything. Uh, the only things that the United States could potentially give have to do with NATO membership uh, from Ukraine or the sanctions regime that we've currently got in place. But it's it's kind of pretty thin gruel for diplomacy at this stage of the game. Excellent point. Uh, and we've got a really great
0: guest uh, to discuss this, uh, George Beebe, former top Russia analyst for the CIA, so let's get to it. We've now got with us George Beebe. He is the director of grand strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Uh, George, welcome to Skullduggery.
3: Thank you very much.
0: And a lot we want to talk to you about, but I want to start out. We had a a fascinating conversation uh, last week at this uh, event commemorating the anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I was uh, really struck uh, both by your perspective on the events in Ukraine, but particularly in light of your background. So start out by just telling us who you are, who you work for and how some of your past associations fit in with your current somewhat dovish position on the war in Ukraine.
3: Well, um, I started out at uh, the Central Intelligence Agency back in 1986 when there was a Soviet Union, when uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And we were trying to figure out in the U.S. government who this character uh, Gorbachev really is. And there were debates raging at the time as to whether he was a, a genuine reformer or yet another in a long line of uh, Soviet apparatchiki. Um And then uh, over the course of my career in the U.S. government, of course, uh, I watched the, uh, the Soviet Union go away, the uh, Berlin Wall fall, the Warsaw Pact dissolve, and... Uh, the efforts at uh, uh, liberal democratic market reforms inside Russia during the 1990s. I did some rotations to the State Department, uh, including to our mission uh, in Vienna, Austria, to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, where I was involved in trying to uh, to monitor and encourage resolution of uh, some of the so-called frozen conflicts in the former Soviet Union in nagorno-karabakh in Georgia in Moldova I uh, then spent a couple of years on Vice President Dick Cheney's staff as his advisor on Russia and the former Soviet Union. This was a period of time when uh, U.S.-Russian relations were much different, <laughs> I'll say, uh, in an understated way, than they are today. Uh, there was uh, this was the post-9/11 period, when many people in Moscow and many people in Washington believed that uh, the United States and Russia had a shared interest in fighting against international terrorism, uh, and we were working to build what we called a strategic partnership at the time that was uh, focused primarily on counterterrorism. And I then uh, went back to CIA and uh, became the head of uh, CIA's Russia Analysis Division. So I'll leave it at that for my, my government. You worked for Cheney at the White House. We all
0: associate with, you know, Dick Cheney with being the Uber hawk on foreign policy issues. And at the Quincy Institute, you have been advocating for diplomacy as a way to end the Ukraine conflict. So I guess that's the uh, the tension I was referring to. And if you can perhaps address how that part of your background meshes with your current position or not
3: (laughs) well um yes i i do believe that uh this war uh needs to end that it it, uh does not serve america's interests for this war to continue that the dangers of a direct military conflict between the united states and russia are significant and the sooner we can find a way to marry our military support for Ukraine, which I do think is necessary under these circumstances, with a diplomatic track that can uh, bring this war to a conclusion that certainly preserves Ukraine's independence and sovereignty, but also avoids the uh, disaster scenario, if you want to call it that, of a direct U.S.-Russian military conflict. I don't think you can serve both of those interests without uh, a diplomatic track of some kind going on. Uh, We're not going to fight our way to a situation where Ukraine wins everything it wants. No diplomatic accord is necessary in all of this. And Russia goes home chastened and does not uh, cause any further problems. So we're going to have to, I think, bring together military support for Ukraine with a diplomatic track if we're going to find our way out of this situation.
0: Just to complete the circle, does your former boss Dick Cheney share your perspective on this?
3: Well, I haven't talked to him about this, uh, but I would I'd be surprised if he did. The reason so would I. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's fairly clear uh, that there are significant differences of opinion within the Republican Party about how to handle this. Not dissimilar to the kind of debates that went on in the 1950s under Dwight Eisenhower when there was a fairly significant rollback faction within the Republican Party that believed that uh, we should not be conceding any territory in Eastern Europe to Soviet domination or or rule, and that we needed to be working to push back communism, not just there, but all over the world. And a raid against that was another faction in the Republican Party that believed that that kind of course was actually quite dangerous, that it risked direct war with the Soviet Union. And it would almost inevitably be a nuclear war under those circumstances. Uh, And if you recall, Eisenhower sponsored at that time what he called the Solarium Project, where he put together different groups of people to argue for different uh, courses of action. And in fact, uh, the rollback people lost the detente people, if you want to call it that, prevailed. But those divisions within the Republican Party continued throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s to varying degrees. And I I think Cheney was quite uh, closely associated with uh, what I would call the rollback faction of the GOP. Uh, He had great concerns about detente. This... uh, played out during the Ford administration in the 1970s, certainly. And my guess is that he would be with the Republican Hawks today. So, George, we should
1: explore what some of these diplomatic tracks could look like. But before we get to that, you know, as you know, the Biden administration's firm policy right now is that the United States and the West should allow uh, Ukraine to determine its own destiny. It is isn't up to the United States to try to Push them toward some kind of diplomatic uh, resolution, and at least reading the accounts of from Ukraine, uh, you know the, the Ukrainians seem fairly defiant. I saw a quote in the New York Times this morning. Uh, a Ukrainian, in response to some of these uh, latest attacks by the Russians on Ukrainian infrastructure, water supplies, you know, he said, How- "However bad as this winter will be, it will never be as bad as living under Russia." So, if the goal here is diplomacy, but the Ukrainians aren't interested in diplomacy or compromise. What is your suggestion for how to get the Ukrainians there, and why should we believe that that would happen?
3: Well, you know, when you talk about diplomacy, one of the things that I think often comes to mind is this image of uh, Russia and the United States going off into uh, a private room somewhere and cutting a deal over the Ukrainians' heads about where Ukrainian territory is going to be delineated on the map, then coming back to the Ukrainians saying, it's all solved, here you go, and force feeding this on the, onto the Ukrainians in some way. I think the Biden administration is staunchly opposed to that kind of an approach. I think nearly every Ukrainian on the face of the earth is opposed to that kind of approach. And so am I. If for no other reason, you know, leaving aside all of the, the, the moral drawbacks to doing that, it's completely impractical. Uh, the Ukrainians wouldn't accept that kind of a deal and it therefore wouldn't hold. This is no longer, you know, the 19th century where. Europe's great powers can cook up deals between themselves and impose it on lesser nationalities in the interests of stability in Europe. Those days are over, and I'm not aware of anybody that is talking about the importance of diplomacy that has that kind of model in mind. I certainly don't. What I have in mind here is that there are a couple of important dimensions to this war. One is a bilateral war between Ukraine and Russia, and that's clearly one for, for Ukraine and Russia to work out, particularly the question of borders and territory. The United States shouldn't involve itself in that. But there's a, another dimension, which is a, a strategic dimension that involves the United States and Russia and NATO and Russia. And that's a dimension in which the United States clearly is a player. It is involved to an enormous degree in this war. And our positions on that broader strategic relationship between Russia and the United States and Russia and NATO are critically important factors in this conflict. So just as uh, the United States can't work out the issue of territory, without Ukrainian involvement with Russia, the Ukrainians can't work out the broader issue of of that strategic relationship between Russia and the United States and Russia and NATO through their own bilateral talks with Russia. Can I just
1: ask one very quick follow-up, and then I know uh, Victoria has a question. As far as the bilateral diplomacy between Ukraine and Russia, it sure sounds like Putin's plan is to wipe Ukraine off the map. I mean, he, he essentially has called Ukraine a historical fiction. So how do you bridge that divide between Ukraine, which obviously believes staunchly in its own autonomy and, and independence as a, as a free state, and someone whose goal is to wipe the country off the face of, uh, of the map?
3: Well, I, I don't think that Putin's intention is to wipe Ukraine off the map. Now, now, certainly, if Russia were capable of sending its military forces you know, into Lviv, all the way to the, the western border of Ukraine, taking control and governing the country, uh, making it a part of Russia again, would he do that? My guess is, yeah, he probably would. But that's a fantasy. And and he certainly knows that. And I think this war has already shown that Russia is completely incapable of achieving that. So, you know, whether, you know, in his dreams, he might think that might be a desirable goal or not, is essentially immaterial. His ambitions are much more modest than that. Now, that doesn't mean that those ambitions are not problematic. They certainly are problematic. But I think the question of whether Russia can erase Ukraine from the map has already been answered. That can't happen right now. So what Putin is having to do is to figure out what is achievable here. And I think it's in our interest to, show him that what is achievable is far more modest than he might like.
2: So let me follow up on the idea of bilateral or kind of quasi bilateral negotiations between the United States and Russia. What would you put on the table? What would you have the United States offer? And how do you think anything that the United States could offer would actually alter the course of this current conflict between Russia and Ukraine?
3: Well, uh, that's an excellent question, and also a very difficult one to be specific about, because anybody that's ever been in a negotiation knows that you don't start out by offering concessions. That's usually a recipe for losing a lot of the leverage that you would have in your negotiation. So you, you wanna start out not by making concessions, you wanna start out by exploring where the other side's coming from. It's sort of like two boxers at the beginning of a boxing match that are, that are feeling each other out a little bit and trying to figure out, you know, where's this guy coming from? Where are his strengths? Where are his weaknesses? How can I attack? How can I achieve what I need to achieve? So I don't think the United States ought to come in and say, here's what we're willing to offer. What we need to be doing is talking, first of all, hearing the other side listening trying to get a sense of where they're coming from how much flexibility they might have that's first
2: let me just punch in on this for a second to use the boxing analogy for a second it doesn't feel like we're really in the dark about what putin wants or where he's coming from it kind of feels like we know that already don't you think
3: No, I don't think so. I think we know certain things that he wants. But what you really need to figure out is, what's his minimally acceptable demand here? Where is that point on one line of which he might agree to something on the other side of which he'll he'll use nuclear weapons to achieve it because it it's a core fundamental existential demand from his point of view and i don't think we really know where that is right now would he be willing to retreat to pre-february 24th line of control in the donbass for example as part of an agreement depending on what he might be able to get If Ukraine were to recognize Crimea as a part of Russia, and I'm not arguing that they should necessarily, but, but, you know, let's just hypothetically say if they were, what would that be worth to Putin in terms of what he'd be willing to concede in return for that? Uh, If the United States were to say, look, we're we're willing to acknowledge reality here. And the reality is that uh, Ukraine's not going to be part of NATO uh, in our lifetimes. If we were to to, uh, to put that on paper in some form, what would that in turn, what, what would Putin be willing to concede in return for that kind of situation? These are things that we don't know at this point, and you can't know outside the context of, of direct discussions.
2: Well, let me, let me just do one last follow-up question on this, and then I, I can see that Mike really wants to jump in. But you seem to be presupposing, and I think many Americans might be surprised that Putin is a good faith and reliable counterparty in the negotiations. And I think many Americans, possibly more than just Americans, would tend to believe that he is not a good faith counterparty, that if you give him an inch, he'll take a mile, and that you can't trust his word on these sort of things. I'm really tossing that over to you to say why, sure. you, th- why you think even negotiating with him is something that we can you know have faith in.
3: Well, a, a couple of comments on this. Going back to the Cold War era, there was a strain of argument in the United States that that ran from the 1940s through, you know, 1991, that you can't trust the Soviet leaders, you know, they lie. They don't adhere to their sides of bargains. You know, arms control with them is a futile endeavor because they cheat. They can't be trusted. And you heard this consistently, even during the Cuban Missile Crisis. By the way, to get back to where where Mike began this uh, this interview, the the event that he and I attended about that history, uh, there were a lot of Americans at the time that argued, you know, you can't trust. Khrushchev. You can't trust the Soviets. Our only option really is military attack to remove those missiles from Cuba. Don't succumb to the temptation to try to cut some sort of deal. And I have to say that, you know, from my perspective, the history of the Cold War indicated that, in fact, we could count on the Soviets. You know, you don't trust them as honest, you know, good faith people, but you can trust them to live up to their own self-interests in all of this. Can
1: I ask just one very quick follow-up to that? Sorry, Mike. But since you're a student of history and you're talking about history, it just made me think that American foreign policy thinkers and 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 decision makers uh, for generations their views were shaped by what they saw close up talking about Munich 1938 and uh, fears of appeasement and you know I think there are people today uh, maybe yourself included who who think that in some ways we overlearn that lesson and we're seeing that play out right now. I wonder how you think about the historical forces that shaped your worldview, you talked at the beginning of this podcast about starting at the CIA when we were trying to figure out who this guy Gorbachev was and whether he was truly a reformist. You saw what happened. You've, the, the Berlin Wall fell more or less before your own eyes. How, how um, has that shaped your view of the situation we're in right now? And is there any, do you ever think, well, maybe there's a danger of overlearning that lesson?
3: Well, I think there's always a danger of overlearning lessons. lessons, uh, and we, we do need to be very cautious about uh, drawing conclusions on these things. Uh, history can be abused in many different directions. You can draw upon whatever particular analogy you think is uh, most supportive of a course of action that you already believe is the right one. And yeah, I do believe that uh, the notion that uh, diplomacy with the Russians is tantamount to appeasement, that, you know, we need to make sure we don't repeat Munich or Yalta for that matter here. Um, I think that's a very powerful belief right now. I think it is, it is driving our approach to this situation. And I think we need to be very careful about that. But to your point, what happened during the course of my career, And I I saw a lot of things happen that were surprises Um, and surprise in the intelligence business is not usually a good thing. (laughs) The CIA was created to minimize the chances of a Pearl Harbor like surprise. Our fundamental mission has been one of warning. Um, And so uh, with that in mind, the number of times in the course of my career that our expert class and I'm I'm using that term advisedly uh, because um, it wasn't just the intelligence community that got surprised by a lot of things. I think the expert class writ large uh, in the United States and West got surprised by a lot of things. That told me that we need to be very careful about asking ourselves what assumptions are underpinning the judgments that we're coming to. Are there alternative ways of understanding the dynamics of the events that we're looking at right now? Asking ourselves, how can we be surprised? And looking at conventional wisdom and looking at our own judgments with a skeptical eye. Uh, I think that's healthy to do. I think the alternative to that is that you do get surprised and you also miss opportunities that might be there that you could take advantage of. And so I think an awful lot of that has, has in fact been happening over the past 30 years, you know, not just since February 24th. Um, and it should ca- cause all of us, I think, to ask ourselves, what key assumptions are we operating under here that we need to look at critically?
0: So I was struck by you were talking about the need to um, uh, listen to the other side, to engage them in a, in a dialogue. Since we've been talking about Cold War history, of course, that was an argument one tended to hear from the left from uh, many of the people on the left uh, associated with the Democratic Party would argue along those lines. So we recently had this experience of the House Progressive Caucus sort of taking up some of those uh, positions in this letter they sent to the White House, urging the president to adopt a new strategy for Ukraine that emphasized diplomacy. No sooner did it get released that then, um, all the many of the signers walked away from the letter and withdrew it. Now, I know the Quincy Institute, I believe, had seen an advanced copy of that letter uh, before it went out. But what did you make? of that experience with the House Progressive Caucus and what it says about the opportunity for, I guess, a healthy debate about you know a, our most pressing foreign policy issue.
3: Well, um, Ambassador uh, Tom Pickering, former senior State Department official, and I wrote a, uh, an op-ed uh, in the aftermath of this where we said that this whole thing was a shame uh, because Uh, Why? We're going to need diplomacy of some kind to bring this war to an end without uh, some sort of disaster. And if diplomacy itself uh, becomes a forbidden term in Washington debate, that's going to actually make it more difficult to steer this war in the direction that it needs to go. Uh, than it would otherwise be. So I, I regard this whole thing as, as a real shame. And I think there's a danger in all of this. And, and the danger could be that diplomacy itself becomes a politicized term in Washington. And I think it would be very bad for the country if one party becomes associated with diplomacy and the other becomes associated with, you know, complete victory on the battlefield, uh, whatever might uh, be required to to achieve that. I think an unconditional Ukrainian victory is uh, not possible and quite dangerous to pursue. By the same token, I think using only diplomacy, you know, coming hat in hand to the Russians and say, please, let's have peace, is also a formula for disaster. I think we have to bring military force together with diplomatic engagement in a complementary way that can bring this war to a close and achieve all of our critical interests in all of this. And that should be something that both parties can agree on. You can debate over the relative mix of things, but I don't think we should uh, be in a situation where one party is for all war and the other party is for all diplomacy. And that was never the case during the Cold War. There was a broad bipartisan consensus around our containment strategy. There were debates about the mix of things within there, the tactical positions that the United States might take. But broadly speaking, everybody was on board with that approach to dealing with the Soviets. And I think we need a a bipartisan approach today.
0: Look, a lot of me agrees with everything you've just said. But then, like a lot of people, I'm conflicted when I look at the reality of what the Russians are doing in Ukraine. First of all, they invaded a sovereign country. You know, we have recognized that the United Nations is recognized. So, you know. Right off the bat, they've engaged in aggressive war, something we prosecuted the Nazis for at Nuremberg. Um, just this week, they're hurling cr- cruise missiles in Kiev, attacking critical infrastructure, depriving 80% of the city's residents of any water supply. We found mass graves, uh, the Ukrainians have, that fit every definition of war crimes. When you see that, how do you negotiate with war criminals who are doing what the russians are doing in ukraine
3: well my reaction to that is yes you know all of those things that you you're talking about are true but you you have to look at this in very pragmatic terms i think the number of times that wars have ended in unconditional victory followed by prosecution of the defeated country for various war crimes is tiny and almost always requires military occupation of the defeated country. We were able to put Nazis on trial for war crimes. Why? Because they surrendered unconditionally and we occupied their country militarily. They had no choice the likelihood that we're going to occupy Russia militarily and send Putin and his cohorts off to some war crime tribunal in handcuffs is infinitesimally small and the reason why that is small is is you know very clear russia has nuclear weapons if push comes to shove the russians might well use them to avoid exactly that kind of scenario that we're talking about here so that's something that i think we have to bear in mind as we as we think about how we deal with this situation second to to harken back to a different episode in history Um, the first Persian Gulf War. Uh, Saddam Hussein in Iraq clearly invaded a sovereign country. They did so without provocation and violation of international law. We and the United Nations rightly condemned that and intervened militarily as we should have done under those circumstances, A, because it was an act of aggression and illegal and B, because it happened in a part of the war, uh, world that was uh, quite critically important to uh, American national interests. Now, we expelled uh, Saddam's forces from Kuwait, but we then faced an interesting question. Should the United States pursue the fleeing Iraqi military into Baghdad, depose Saddam from power and make sure that he was in no condition or Iraq in no condition to undertake that kind of aggression again. Now, there was a debate within the U.S. government at the time over whether to do this or not. Ultimately, Brent Scowcroft, who was then the national security advisor to George H.W. Bush, prevailed in that debate, arguing that A, that kind of action would cause the international coalition to fracture. Uh, that was backing the uh, military intervention uh, in Kuwait. And B, that this could upset the balance of power uh, in the Persian Gulf between Iraq and Iran and lead to all sorts of other problems. And C, it would saddle us with responsibility for governance in Iraq, which he thought was an unwise position for the United States to be in. Now, there were those in the uh, Bush administration that argued against Scowcroft in this. Uh, Several of those figures got another bite at the apple uh, about 12 years later and were able to do then what they thought the United States should have done in 1990. And I think history has shown that that was not a wise decision to make. And I think that had nothing to do with whether Saddam Hussein was evil, whether he had violated international law, whether he and Iraq were uh, guilty of war crimes. All of those things were true. But that by itself does not commit you to a course of action. Um, those are factors to consider as you weigh what the best course of action is to advance America's critical national security interests. And I think in this particular case, I would argue that certainly Russia's invasion of Ukraine needs to be repelled. We need to make sure that Ukraine as a sovereign and independent state is protected and continues to survive. But beyond that, I think we have another compelling interest not getting into a direct military conflict with Russia. So both of those things have to be balanced here.
2: Let me follow up on that not getting into an armed conflict with Russia. uh, That seems to be really the main impetus for your concerns and your reasons why you think we ought to enter into some sort of negotiations with Russia. Tell us about how you assess that risk and why you assess it to be higher, maybe than most other people do.
3: I'm guided by something that John Kennedy said at American University and a speech that he gave in the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis, where he essentially said for him, the big lesson of this crisis was that the leaders of, you know, nuclear powers shouldn't be put into a position where they are forced to choose between national humiliation and nuclear war. That's not the kind of decision memo that I, as uh, somebody who's been in that advisory chain, want to be sending up the chain of command for consideration. Um, I think it's in our interest, certainly, that we not put Putin in a position where we have to test how he would opt if given that kind of uh, choice. You know, I'm not saying that he would necessarily opt to use nuclear weapons. But uh, boy, I I don't think it's in America's national interest to check and see whether he will. And I don't think we need to, honestly. I think we can achieve what is necessary vis-a-vis Ukraine and vis-a-vis Russia without putting Putin in that kind of position. And that's where we need to be charting our course right now. That, I think, is going to require diplomatic engagement with the Russians. Um, And we need to be thinking hard now about our approach to this so that we don't find ourselves in a situation where we've put him in in that kind of dilemma unintentionally.
1: George, what is your view of the theory that I think is very much associated with uh, uh, John uh, Mersheimer, the political scientist at the University of Chicago, that the West and the United States is in many ways responsible for the situation that we are in now because of pushing for NATO enlargement, pushing, um, trying to you know, Ukraine out of uh, Russia's orbit and integrating it into the West. Do you believe that the West bears, uh, you know, significant responsibility for um, how this is all played out?
3: Well, I think that Putin is fully responsible for the decisions that he made in this particular war. He chose to invade. He didn't have to. Now, that invasion clearly was an act of aggression. It was uh, unprovoked and clearly illegal under the terms of the United Nations Charter. It was not authorized by the Security Council. It was not in response to some sort of an attack on Russia. So I don't believe there's any justification for what he did. And it's easy to imagine that a different Russian leader would have handled the situation differently. But that doesn't mean that I think the United States handled this situation leading up to the war well. I do think that we could have and should have handled it in a different way. I do believe that the war was avoidable. That doesn't mean that I blame the United States for this. I think this war is fully on Putin's shoulders. But uh, I do think that uh, this was avoidable and that we, we could have handled this differently. Just as an example, you know, we've been talking to the Russians about the European security situation since the, you know, late 1980s, you know, first with the Soviet Union over the reunification of of Germany and what would happen to the NATO alliance if Germany were to reunite at the time. And we've, we've been talking to them throughout the 1990s and 2000s, you know, all the way up to the present day. And we've had a situation evolve over this time in which the European security order has essentially left russia out and i don't think that's a healthy situation Uh, a situation where the russians feel that they're on the outside looking in actually incentivizes them to try to undermine the people that are on the inside Um, and i don't think that was a wise situation for us to allow to occur i think it's very much in the united states interest for the russians to be inside with incentives to help stabilize the situation rather than destabilize the situation. So that's that's not blaming the United States for the war. But, uh, you know, I think it's also an acknowledgement that this situation has been building for a long time. and And I think both sides actually badly mishandled it.
0: You talked before about how you were at the CIA uh, during the 80s and trying to make sense of, of Gorbachev and where he was headed, but you were also at the CIA during the rise of Putin. And I think you were the top Russia analyst at the CIA until, what, 2009, if I'm not mistaken. So during that time, on the one hand, Putin was helping us on counterterrorism issues. I believe he famously called George W. Bush right after the 9-11 attacks. But he was also leveling Grozny, assassinating political dissidents, including one in London, Litvinenko, invading Georgia, Tell us what you made of Putin while you were at the CIA. What's your assessment of how, f- in particular, how far he was prepared to go? And has your view of Putin changed today from what it was back then?
3: Well, you know, when fer- Putin first came to power, um, there was a major effort inside the US government to try to figure out if he was a good witch or a bad witch, so to speak. And, and which side were you on? Uh, well, I, I was initially on neither side. Um, my, my, uh, my position was, I don't know. <laughs> let's, let's look and try to figure this out. And, and a few things surprised me, actually, early on. So when Putin first came to power, he issued a, a quite a comprehensive public statement at the turn of the millennium. 1999 to 2000, which was actually called the Millennium Statement. And he offered a deep analysis of where things went wrong inside Russia uh, during the 1990s. And and remember that the 90s for Russians was a traumatic period. Uh, It started out with some relatively high hopes that Russians could live quote unquote, a normal life compared to what they had been living under Soviet rule. But very quickly, things started to go very wrong and, uh, you know, people lost their life savings overnight due to the effects of uh, inflation and, you know, the country itself dissolved, which, you know, in and of itself is a is a traumatic psychological event. 25 million Russians who had been living outside the confines of the Soviet Socialist Republic of of Russia suddenly found themselves in independent countries in which Russians were minorities, um, which also posed a whole bunch of problems. And over the course of this time, the Russians, as they saw their their economy, you know, collapse, their uh, life expectancy plunged to 57 years for Russian males at one point. Putin then, you know, became president and he he became president as a result of Putin, uh, of Yeltsin stepping down and apologizing to the Russian people, saying, you know, I'm sorry about what's happened. It wasn't my intention for all this to happen. Uh, And Putin had to figure out, what do I do? Um, so this millennium document laid out his analysis of what went wrong and what needed to be done. And essentially, he said, look, the, the biggest problem that we've had over the last decade is that the, the Russian state itself collapsed. We weren't able to govern. The state couldn't do things. The state would issue you know directives and nobody did what the state was telling it to do. We couldn't collect taxes. And power drifted from the state, you know, to private individuals, business people who were, you know, acting in illegal and unscrupulous ways. Um, And so the biggest thing that had to happen from Putin's point of view is we had to rebuild the state, its, its capacity, its ability to govern again. But he also talked about foreign policy and he did not define Russia in opposition to the West. He essentially said look Russia is a western country western culture has a central role to play in Russia but it is also more than that it's a country that uh, also has ties to the east and you know needs to be an independent player not subservient to the east not subservient to the west but a great power in its own right and this great power concept, I think, is critical to Putin, not just for prestige reasons, not because he wants to be one of the, you know, the, the people that sit around uh, the table in the, the board of directors room of, of the world, so to speak, but also because he doesn't think that Russia can survive as a country unless it is a great power. Um, unless it it radiates power into its neighborhood and can veto things that its neighbors might do that Russia believes threaten Russian interests. And I think this harkens back to, you know, this long history of foreign invasion in Russia and the way the Russians have have coped with that over the centuries. So my take on Putin was that he was actually very typical of Russian political culture, in that he believed in, in a strong state, and he believed that Russia must be a great power you know, abroad. And uh, today? Well, I don't think he's changed a lot in those two fundamental objectives, but a couple of other things have happened to him. One, he's become quite embittered by the West, by the United States in particular. He believes that he reached out and Russia reached out in a very significant way in the early 1990s, trying to build a partnership, and that Russia made major concessions uh, to the United States to demonstrate its willingness to be a partner. And I think he feels that the the West essentially pocketed those concessions and exploited them and took advantage of them and and in a sense humiliated him personally. So there's an awful lot of bitterness and I would say vitriol uh, in Putin because he feels as if Russia was spurned by the United States. And that's become quite a serious problem in the relationship, obviously. But the other thing that I think has happened is that he's become much more isolated within his own circle of advisors. And part of the reason for that is that he's been in power for so long. He's seen so many things. He's so deeply familiar with all of these issues. He knows more about them than, than any of his advisors. Um, And I think to a great degree, he's lost respect for them. And as a result, uh, he's not getting the kind of devil's advocacy (laughs) that he needs to get, the kinds of challenges he needs from advisors that will help him avoid the kinds of errors that uh, somebody who is, you know, isolated and believes he knows better is prone to. And I think that's a significant danger that he's in right now, too.
0: Well, uh, George, I want to thank you for a really interesting and important discussion. I should have pointed out in the introduction that you're also the author of a book you wrote a few years ago, The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Catastrophe. Uh, And I think I can uh, say without fear of contradiction that uh, we all hope that you were not too much of a prophet in the title of your uh, of your book. But anyway, thanks. uh, Thanks for joining us
3: my pleasure and i i I hope i'm not a prophet too (laughs) well we can say you're maybe prescient but
1: not
0: a prophet
2: (laughs) (laughs) all right thank you